There is a saying that goes, tactics wins battles, but logistics wins wars. In other words, it doesn't matter how good your soldiers and weapons are if you can't get them to the battlefield and sustain them when they get there. The same is true for mercenaries. That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome back for this fourth installment on the role of quasi-mercenary organizations in contemporary warfare. I'm Chris Mayer. To have any effect in combat or facilitating combat by national military forces, mercenary forces must be able to recruit personnel, secure weapons and other equipment, train them, get their forces into the conflict region, and then sustain them, that is, keep them manned and supplied. A couple of things before moving on with this topic. To begin, why is understanding mercenary logistics important? In fact, why have I broken down this series about mercenaries in modern warfare the way I have? Well, the first objective is to build the argument that there is a demand for these services and that some are legitimate, but many others are not. Furthermore, that these illegitimate providers, that is, those that do not abide by the law of war or human rights law, and who are not accountable under the law, pose a threat to our national security as well as the security of the regions where they operate. Next, in learning about their logistics, we can identify potential areas where we can bring pressure on them and where any such attempt may not be successful. After this, that is in the next podcast, I'll talk about who these organizations work for, who pulls their strings and gives them marching orders. Finally, I'll wrap up with a discussion by a group of experts exploring the desired outcomes encountering quasi-mercenary organizations and the methods and resources that will be needed to achieve those outcomes. Now, back to logistics. I apologize for the break between the last episode and this one. I'm a retired cavalry officer, not a logistician. From company to corps level, I can tell you exactly what those forces will need and when they will need it in preparation for and in the conduct of combat operations. How to get it to the warfighters in a timely and reliable manner, I leave to experts, which isn't me. The means and methods of supplying mercenary forces is even more complex. For a flavor of this, I recommend the fictional account in the movie The Lord of War. I will try to address the current non-fictional means and methods in this podcast. Big picture military planning divides logistics into four large buckets. Material, personnel, services, and facilities. I will use the same four buckets, but adding a fifth, money. Quasi-mercenary organizations, or QMOs, are businesses. This is true whether they operate as a legitimate business, such as Dyke Advisory Group, or operate extra-legally or illegally, such as Wagner. This means they need money. QMOs need money to secure its logistical support and to generate a profit for those that own or manage the QMO. This also applies to freelance mercenaries, although not quite in the same way. Sometimes, the logistics means and methods of QMOs and freelance mercenaries overlap, so, while the focus of this series within the ancient art of modern warfare is on QMOs, I will also touch on freelance mercenary logistics. I think that this big picture view is more appropriate if we're discussing the strategic impact of these QMOs rather than how they may affect individual military engagements. To help me do this, I'm joined again by Colonel Robert Waring, U.S. Army, retired. 
Before we go on, I need to put in a little disclaimer. Uh, although Colonel Waring is a faculty instructor at the Army War College, he's speaking only in his personal capacity, and therefore his comments do not reflect the official position of the U.S. Army War College. So, Rob, welcome back, and uh, how are we going to kick this off? So how do mercenaries get their stuff? It's not like they can order it from Amazon or even get it through regular military distribution systems. Or can they? For material like other buckets we'll talk about, the answer depends upon which three types of mercenaries you're looking at. Legitimate private military companies, other quasi-mercenary organizations, or freelance mercenaries. For legitimate PMCs like STEP, who we talked about in the previous episode, acquisition is really pretty straightforward although it may change according to the terms of the contract. Weapons, vehicles, radios, body armor, uniforms, etc. can often be purchased through open sources. This is often through contracts made directly with the manufacturers of that equipment or through governments contracting for the PMC services. Sometimes there's a two-step process. For example, with ground vehicles or with aircraft, you could buy a basic civilian version of the car or the airplane, and then you contract with an outfitter who will turn it into an up-armored level B6 armored car or attach hard points so that you can then mount weapons on the ground vehicle or the airplane. There are actually companies that will do this both here in the United States and overseas. The important part is that the acquisition process is through regular contracts and financial vehicles, and it almost always involves securing the appropriate purchase and export licenses. And I've seen this process firsthand. The major hurdle is not the administration and licensing, but finding the best sources for the best price. You know, Colt or Bushmaster, Glock or Beretta, Spartan or Tacticon Bardi armor. Do we go directly to the manufacturer or through a second party? Or can I get it on Amazon? Sometimes you can at least if you don't want you know, hundreds of items anyway. For freelance mercenaries, there's the wide world of arms trafficking. In some cases, the freelance will re be required to provide his own kit, but that's not usual. Most of the time, he's provided it when he gets on site. These are supplied in much the same way as any organized international criminal activity. Mercenaries work for money. We'll bring up this time and time again. Therefore, there has to be an agent with access to money responsible for equipping the mercenaries hired by the same funding source, which in most cases is some sort of state-sponsored organization. Mark Unger in the Latin America Research Review describes how this trafficking works. Weapons can be found almost everywhere. Such weapons could be excess due to military drawdowns, seized in law enforcement actions, or even turned in as part of a peace agreement ending an armed conflict. In most cases, in many parts of the world, this inventory is poorly managed. For a price, entire stockpiles of weapons in storage or earmarked for destruction go missing, unreported, or reported as destroyed when they're not. Mark Unger's focus is Latin America, but reports by the UN Office of Drugs and Crime and other sources indicate that the system is similar elsewhere. The key enabler is a criminal network of brokers and transportation, with relatively weak border controls. This is assisted by the reality that most mercenary operations take place with some measure of government support and covered. Bob Denard's action, famous French mercenary in Africa who I described in earlier podcasts, is a case in point. The most famous of such brokers was Victor Bout, who was arrested in 2008 after notoriously enabling arms trafficking across several continents. Hey, did they make a movie about him? 
Oh, they did. That was, uh, it was Nicolas Cage played the character. They made him into an American rather than a Russian. The movie was The Lord of War, which I mentioned in the introduction. Although fictional, it pretty much followed the way that Victor Bout went about his business. And if you watch that movie, you can see all of the things that I just described above in terms of how the how the money comes in and how they acquire the weapons and resources and how they actually get it to where it needs to go. But these podcasts are mostly about quasi-mercenary organizations and their logistics fit somewhere in between legitimate PMCs and freelance mercenaries. These QMOs often, if not always, work in support of one government's foreign policy objectives and another government's domestic policy objectives. Their procurement of weapons and other materials is not as open and transparent as that of legitimate PMCs, but neither do they need to go through arms traffickers. In many cases, the material is provided by their state-sponsoring government from excess inventory. This material may be directly issued to the QMO by the sponsoring or sending state, or transferred to the receiving state, that is the government that's being supported, which then supplies that material to the QMO. This state provision of materiel may make state deniability less credible, but it also makes it more difficult to interrupt the supply chain. But how do these weapons and other tools of war get to the mercenary or QMO? Well, you know, as uh, I mentioned earlier, legitimate PMCs like STEP or uh, Dyke Advisory Group or the newly reestablished executive outcomes they're usually very careful to get the proper licenses and authorizations. Usually, anyway. Arms trafficking to freelance mercenaries involves a brokering and smuggling network that, like the acquisition of the material itself, relies on porous borders and corruptions. But what about QMOs in places like Ukraine? Well, that's even easier. Russia provides the material directly to their irregular forces. Items might just disappear from public inventory records, be listed as destroyed, or or who knows, maybe expensed as a gift to freedom fighters. Sometimes it's even easier than that. According to the March 2021 UN Security Council report on Libya, one of Evgeny's Prigozhin's companies, Evropolis, even manufactures wheeled armored personnel carriers, keeping the supply chain completely in-house. You mentioned keeping the supply chain in-house. That's a lot like what Ford used to do in their early days. They made everything from the rubber tires to all of their components. That was all done under Henry Ford's hands. But what about places further afield? Many of these conflict regions are under some sort of sanctions or arms embargo. How do they get deployed to those locations? Well, regarding Libya, a report released by the United Nations Security Council in March of this year described the arms embargo of that country as totally ineffective. In the Central African Republic, Russia convinced the UN Security Council to lift the sanctions for Russian arms to be delivered to the recognized government. So the UN itself is participating in this arms trafficking to the quasi-mercenary organizations. And similar arrangements have been used in other countries. But again, Russia isn't the only sponsor of QMOs. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, sometimes called SIPRI, claimed that between 2015 and 2019, Qatar increased its arms imports by 631%, Egypt by 212%, and Saudi Arabia by 130%. These numbers are far in excess of any apparent growth in the standing armies of those countries. 
and it's convenient that Egypt supports Haftar's Russian QMOs next door in Libya, and Saudi Arabia shares a border with Yemen, and the Saudi and UAE-sponsored QMOs that operate there. Sea lanes run from Iran to Aden in Yemen, and barring the willingness to board and inspect Iranian-flagged vessels, it's very easy for Iran to supply its mercenaries supporting the Houthis in that conflict. Sometimes, though, the international agreements on arms trafficking actually work. The UN Security Council reports that in June 2019, the Jordanian government became aware of a scheme to transfer excess military material from Jordan to Libya and stopped the planned auction of the excess equipment. Now, stopped the planned auction of excess equipment. I mean, just it's a scary thought that they're actually auctioning excess military equipment, and who knows where it might go after that. In most cases, however, the Security Council report indicates that sponsoring governments, whether Russia, Turkey, or the UAE, simply ignore the embargo to Libya and fly material directly into the country using their own aircraft, or for Russia, aircraft from other countries of the Russian-led Commonwealth of Independent States. All military organizations, or at least successful military organizations, are people-centric. Material is important, but it must be applied by human beings who must be technically competent, tactically proficient, and most importantly, be able to work together as a team. So where do merchant organizations get these people? How do they get them to the conflict zone? Well, when, when most people think of mercenaries, they may think of ex-foreign legion or white South African or Rhodesian ex-soldiers, maybe British or American adventurers with questionable military records. Although there are some of those, the truth is much more complex. In Africa, many of them are African-born and raised. In the previous podcast, I mentioned mercenaries from Chad working with Russian QMOs in Libya. The civil wars in Ivory Coast and Sierra Leone drew mercenaries from Liberia. The conflict in the Central African Republic reportedly draws mercenaries from Chad, Ethiopia, and other neighboring countries. Like the acquisition of material, Legitimate PMCs are fairly open about their recruitment. Eben Barlow of Executive Outcomes and STEP and Lionel Dyke of Dyke Advisory Group have spoken or written openly about how they manage their operations. So, for example, Executive Outcomes, when it was operating in Angola and subsequently Sierra Leone, 80% of their uh, soldiers, if you want to call them that, of their, of their personnel, were actually black South Africans. This is very unlike the model that most people think of when they think of mercenaries operating in Africa. Sandline, run by Tim Spicer in Sierra Leone, operated much the same way. It isn't quite like applying for a job you see advertised in social media, but there's little secretive about it. Generally, it's a matter of people who know people, usually former soldiers who have served with one another with an informal interview process, followed by formal employment contracts. Again, this is for legitimate QMOs. Employment is usually for a specific contract and may be for the duration of the contract or for a specific period of time. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, in many of these or most cases, the individuals are actually enlisted into the armed forces of the country of the government that they're supporting. Contracts are, however, usually at will with little job security. Sometimes, however, the contract does stipulate medical care for wounds sustained in the course of the contract and survivor benefits. For freelance mercenaries, the entire job market often violates laws in the states where the mercenary is from, where he's recruited, and where he'll fight. Even when the mercenary is secretly supported by a government, 
he may have no knowledge of that support or even which country is supporting his employment. That country is almost assuredly not going to do anything for him if he's killed or captured. This means that there's no standard pattern for recruitment, although this circuit of known operators is usually important. What about services? How do mercenaries provide for their people? Things like health care, facilities, and other services that are usually contracted. Well, this is interesting. So for, for freelance mercenaries, it's pretty much contract to contract from conflict to conflict. If the organization they're supporting has a any sort of functioning health services, then they can be expected to be uh, provided for there, but maybe not. Uh, in legitimate contracts with legitimate quasi-mercenary organizations, the uh, you know like Dyke and Step and Executive Outcomes, then that's part of the overall contract and will be included in the terms of the contract. For quasi-mercenary organizations that, like the Russian quasi-mercenary organizations, there's a certain amount of help that's provided both in, in theater, and we know that some Wagner-type operatives and other, from other uh, Russian quasi-mercenary organizations have received medical care once evacuated to Russia. But it's very difficult to say. Even working for a legitimate private security company, it's not a sure thing that you're going to get good medical support. But, you know, if you're really worried about that kind of stuff, you probably wouldn't be joining a mercenary organization. Facilities I want to talk about in just a little bit, but I do want to talk about contracting because all of these services, especially the QMOs that we're trying to focus on, are done under contract. So you've got to have a contracting vehicle. Now, in our case of the United States government, for aggressive, we have a very robust, a very mature contracting system, which is also very open to the public. And the legitimate QMOs have a very open contracting system as well. For the Russian quasi-mercenary organizations, they're done through these holding companies that are run by Prigozhin or other Russian kleptocrats. So organizations like Evropolis or um, Concord Management will actually run the contracting and then they will provide this, whatever services are necessary uh, and the payment that's necessary to keep those uh, quasi-mercenary personnel in the field. Okay, so Rob, uh, you mentioned earlier when we talked about the big logistic buckets that Russia is interested in in, in Africa, uh, you mentioned facilities as being one of them. What kind of facilities is Russia seeking in Africa? Well, as you, as, as you know, one of the things that Russia is trying to do is they want to become a great power again, or at least they want to be seen as a great power. And one of the things that you do to be seen as a great power is be able to project your military forces and project interest all over into different regions. So they're looking at harbors and ports and airfields and installations all, all around the world without having to actually take over other countries. But to do that, they don't actually have the military force right now to, to do those pro, uh, force projection operations, not the way the United States or, or even the United Kingdom does. So they're using these quasi-mercenary organizations to secure those facilities. What kind of facilities do those quasi-mercenary organizations themselves need to be able to do that, to be able to secure facilities for, uh, for Russia and its operations? 
the, the same thing that any military force would need when they when they're trying to project power. You need housing, you need uh, logistics bases, you need uh, communications bases such as ports and airfields. All the same things that any other organization needs to operate in in other theaters. And we do, in fact, see that they're doing that. For example, uh, they're conducting their own training operations in Libya, and they've got facilities that are doing that. We can see on the news where in the Central African Republic where they have their own training centers that are uh, they're using for their own training, as well as the training of the Central African Republic Armed Forces. Whenever you're deploying any forces, whether it's mercenaries or any forces, you always have to have in, in, in your thinking, you got to be thinking about receiving those units into the theater, staging them, consider onward movement, organizing them and integrating them into the, uh, the campaign plan of the theater. You know, that's what we call RSOI. And everybody has to do it. It's just one of those things you got to do once you deploy forces to a theater. And then we have to take this, of course, one step further back is to, to be able to project forces, including mercenary forces, into Africa or other areas. They have to be able to train them up first in Russia. And as a matter of fact, uh, one of the indicators that we have that these mercenaries are actually very much state-sponsored is that Wagner, among others, is known to use facilities next door to the GRU, <clears throat> that is the Russian Military Intelligence Training Center, at Molkino in southwest Russia. And it's not just Russia, of course. You know, the UAE sponsors quasi-mercenary organizations in Libya and other places, and they've got to have a training center, which they do in the UAE itself. So we can trace these organizations back through their logistics train. Not only where are they training or uh, billeting and so on in the country that they're operating also, but in the state that is sponsoring them, such as Mokino in southwest Russia or within the United Arab Emirates itself. So the fifth bucket that I added to this discussion is funding or money. What makes a mercenary is money. That's the root of the word mercenary, the Latin word mercenarius, meaning someone who works for pay, shares the same word with merchant. So to field and maintain a mercenary force, we must, as the saying goes, follow the money. So where does the money come from to field these forces? Rob, you have any ideas? Well, since we're talking about Russian organizations, a lot of it comes from Russia itself. But it also comes from selling the strategic assets that they have in whatever theater they're operating in. This is a really good point because uh, what Russia is doing, China is doing it in their own way too, is they're building up a debt bondage situation in Africa and other developing countries. They sell them the arms and weapons, but the countries really don't have any means to pay for that, so they loan them the money to do that, right? But then they don't know how to use or maintain these new weapons that they just bought on the buy-now-pay-forever plan from Russia. So they uh, send in their trainers, their experts, such as Wagner, such as Seva in Central African Republic. Oh, but I don't have a means to pay for them, because, you know, that wasn't part of the original purchase agreement. So, uh, well, how we do we get more money? How, yeah, how do we get more money from them? Well, actually, this is a little bit different because they don't. 
go into extra debt for that. Instead, Wagner and other of these quasi-mercenary organizations are required to be self-funding. I mean, in Russia does spend some of the money up front to train them, but because it's a shell game, because these are being paid for mostly through other means, such as Prigozhin's companies. So he actually has to come up with a way of covering the cost of operating these QMOs. So, for example, one way to do this in Syria was that they were promised a cut of the take of any of the petroleum facilities that they were able to capture or secure in Syria. Now, this payment didn't go to Wagner itself, but went to Concord Management or Ibropolis or another one of Prigozhin's companies who would then, of course, funnel the money down and pay off Wagner or other Russian QMOs operating there. In the Central African Republic, they're getting mining concessions. They're not actually giving them a mine fee, a, a, a gold mine or something like that, but they're giving them the opportunity to look for uh, precious metals in the Central African Republic. And uh, generally, they do this by finding out where people are already mining and then just uh, moving in and taking over the action. So it's a combination here where the money comes from Russia as kind of like seed money to get these things going. But then they're actually required to be self-funding, which then furthers the debt bondage. Remember the debt bondage, okay? Because now I'm in loan. I've, uh, I've taken out this loan to Russia to pay for the equipment and some of the trainers. But now, to fund the trainers, I'm giving them the access to my natural resources, which I would need to pay the loan to Russia. So it becomes a real, real difficult situation for them. But it's not just Russia, is it? No. No, it isn't. You know, Turkey provides mercenary operations. The United Arab Emirates provides mercenary operations. And in these cases, the money really does come from the government itself. Uh, they're not required to be self-funding. The United Arab Emirates and even Turkey uh, has enough money on their own to support these mercenary operations, which makes this different from the usual follow the money and organized crime. Because if we could just trace it back like we did with Al Capone or other organizations, we would be able to cut the funding flow. It's much, much more difficult when we're dealing with money that's coming from states who are sponsoring the quasi-mercenary operations. Even if the money doesn't directly come from the Russian Treasury, if the, Russian, if the money doesn't directly come from the CAR Treasury, it's coming from processes and procedures that are being supported, enabled, or authorized by those governments. And the money isn't directly going to the Wagner type or other QMOs. It's going to front companies, shell organizations. And, oh, by the way, most of those companies are actually under sanction already from the U.S. government. So uh, saying that we're going to put you under sanction, it doesn't seem to have that much effect on the flow of the money. And again, I'm referring to illegal, extralegal, unregistered, quasi-mercenary organizations sponsored by Russia and some other countries. My sincere thanks to Colonel Waring for helping me to navigate the logistics of quasi-mercenary operations. To recap what we just discussed, the logistics that enable quasi-mercenary organization activity includes materiel, personnel, services, facilities, and most importantly, money. This, in civilian business terms, is their supply chain. Different QMOs rely upon different supply chains, and the same organization may have to use different supply chains for different missions. Most of these QMOs are state-sponsored in some way or another, and to put pressure on any aspect of the supply chain, 
requires the will to put pressure on the sponsoring state. Licensing regimes and sanctions can provide a break onto each of the major logistic buckets, but not in a reliable or universally applicable manner. Mercenaries, merchants, and mercantilism all share the same root word, and Adam Smith's iron law of supply and demand applies to them as it does to any commercial enterprise. Understanding that will help us to better understand how to address the threat posed by contemporary mercenary-like activity. In the next podcast, I'll talk about command and control of mercenary operations. Who's pulling the strings? Who do they really respond to? The answer, like most things involving mercenaries today, is not a simple matter. Join me then for the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.